Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. In December of 1990, I was called to a meeting in Richmond, Virginia. I was serving in a basically a new trustee on the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of 95 trustees from around the convention, and had a real interest in seeing what we could do for the cause of Christ, and almost immediately hit a buzzsaw. We were dealing with a seminary in Europe that was teaching heresy. A seminary where a professor had been hired who did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, who did not believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, and a seminary that was trying to justify that position. The name Rushlakan had never entered my mind until I became a member of the Foreign Mission Board. And suddenly, I knew where it was. And I knew more about it than I wanted to know. The phone call came one day, we need you in Richmond for three days for an executive meeting with the German Baptist, the European Baptist, and the Europe Committee of the Foreign Mission Board. I cannot begin to tell you how thick my file is on that issue, how much documentation I have in my possession, how many letters I have, how many letters that I wrote asking questions trying to get to the base of it and trying to come to the decision that we ultimately came to to defund that seminary because they were teaching what we believed to be heresy. That was not, by the way, a popular decision among everybody in the Southern Baptist Convention. I can also take you and show you a file about that thick of letters that I got from people that didn't know the facts that I knew who told me I was destroying missions. I had letters from people who didn't have 5% of the knowledge that I had and the awareness of the situation that I had that told me that I was a part of the dismantling of the Southern Baptist Convention. I cannot begin to tell you what some of those letters looked like. They came smoking in the mail. And I've kept them because I'll let my children read them one day. But here's the point of all that. If you live long enough, and if you are a leader, and if you desire to be used of God, there's going to come a point, if you're breathing and you're doing anything, when somebody is going to misunderstand you, question your motives, criticize you, and attack your character. It's just going to happen. And it's one of the methods of Satan to try to sidetrack leaders. Because you see, they don't give out gold medals for 95-yard dashes. And a lot of people fail in their life to be the husbands that they're supposed to be, the fathers that they're supposed to be, the Christian businessmen they are supposed to be on the simple basis of the 90% rule. They only finish 90% of what they start. It is in that last 10% where failure or success is determined. Because it is in that 10% that you pay the greatest price and you pay your dues at a higher level to make the decision that has to be made. Did I enjoy making those decisions? Absolutely not. 
Could I have wished to have been out of that situation? Absolutely. But when placed with the responsibility to make that decision and knowing most of all that one day I would stand before a holy God and God's Son who died for me and have to give an account of what I allowed or did not allow in the name of His Son, I had no choice but to draw the line and say, we're not doing this. And I live by the decision, I will give an account for the decision, and I've never apologized for it. I still have folks that don't understand that decision. I meet people at meetings and I see people at denominational events sometimes and, and they still question that decision. But the bottom line is they don't have the information that I had. If they knew what I knew, if they had the files I had, they would probably agree, but I don't have time nor do they have the inclination to get the facts. Isn't that the way it is in life? People don't want to get the facts, they just want to come to an opinion, and it's dangerous to come to an opinion if you don't have all the facts. And so I want to talk to you about spiritual warfare. Because one of the ways that Satan attacks us, and one of the elements of spiritual warfare, is to get us involved in a battle so much that we quit. But you've got to know this, the battle never ends. You never come to a point where you are beyond temptation. You never come to a point where you are immune from the battles and from warfare and from demonic influences and from the attacks of Satan. You don't reach some ethereal point where you have arrived and you are now beyond all the schemes of the devil. He's always there. He's always pressing. This was true in Nehemiah's case, for Nehemiah had encountered the enemy before he ever got to Jerusalem. After he got there, he encountered the enemy. They opposed him and they mocked him. While he was building the wall, they were trying to stop him. And now in chapter 6, they try to stop him. And so I want us to look at spiritual warfare, and I want for those of you that are fanatics about filling your notes out and making sure you get all the blanks right. I just want to tell you right now, you're not going to get through this morning because we're not getting through. That's why there's a four-page outline. We're just going to go until it's time to stop. For some of you, that will be five minutes from now. For others, it'll be when your watch goes off at noon. For others, it'll be a few minutes after. But we're going to go until an appropriate time, and then we're just going to pick up tonight. This is an A and B sermon, all right? So I'm going to put you at ease and you can just kind of relax now and just realize, okay, however far he gets, that's good enough. Everybody feel better. Okay, good. Let's talk about some basic background about spiritual battles. First of all, the work of God is a two-sided coin. Number one, God initiates it. When God does a work, it is God who initiates that work. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 16. Nehemiah 6 and verse 16. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Folks, understand something. God initiates ministry. It is not up to man to initiate ministry. It's not up to man to come up with programs to help God out. It is up to God to lead us so that we can accomplish it with the help of God. If God's not in it, we don't want to do it. No matter how good it looks, no matter how right it appears to be, no matter how reasonable it is, if God's not in it, don't do it. 
God initiates ministry. Secondly, we cooperate with him. We cooperate with him, Nehemiah 6.3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. You see, God uses willing vessels. And there's a law of leadership here. What God initiates, God empowers. What God initiates, God empowers. If God has initiated a ministry, then God provides the power and the resources to do that. God does not empower our fleshly efforts and then we try to ask God to help us out of a bind. God empowers what he initiates. And the question that man has to ask himself is, am I cooperating with what God is doing? Not do I have an agenda, but am I on God's page? Do I have his agenda, his heart, his mind, his will and focus? This project that Nehemiah was involved in did not begin in the heart of Nehemiah began in the heart of God. And God put it in Nehemiah's heart. And you and I must understand, it is not our job to figure out what God wants. It's God's job to reveal what He wants through His Word and then for us to cooperate with Him. Now we have a statement that we use in the Sherwood story that we are to have a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission, and that makes a great church. That doesn't have anything to do with size. There are some churches that have a great commitment to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment that are in struggling areas where it's hard to share the gospel, and they may have 50 people and be a greater church than any church that you can name that has thousands. It has to do with a commitment level. And when you talk about a great commitment to the Great Commission, you're talking about going and teaching. That's evangelism and discipleship. You and I are called to evangelism and discipleship. It's not for debate. It's not for discussion. It's not an option. This is not multiple choice. We are called to be witnesses, and we are called to make disciples. And that's not an issue. The church has its call to make disciples and to reach the lost. Now, we have a great commitment to the great commandment, that means we're to love God. That has to do with our worship. And we're to love our neighbors. That has to do with ministry. That's why care ministry is so important in the life of the church because we care and we minister to people. And you see, when we love our neighbors and when we fulfill the Great Commission and when we fulfill the Great Commandment, it means that sometimes we're involved in ministries that we do not personally benefit from. But church should never be about what I personally benefit from. It should be about what God wants to do in this world, whether I reap a personal benefit out of it or not. It's not what's in it for me. It's what does God want us to do. You see, ministry and the church is never about me. It's always about Him. And if it ever becomes about me or about you, then we lose God-initiating ministry and we start designing our ministries and designing our church and designing our lives around what we feel good about, not what God says to do. And God has a business sometimes of making us uncomfortable because He doesn't want us to get in a rut. And so God's trying to initiate something, and he wants us to be driven by the things that he is concerned about. So there's divine initiative, and there's human cooperation. Notice the quote by Ellen Redpath. He longs that every one of us may be usable. If we are not, that will not thwart God's purpose. 
It will only mean that we will be cast away and set aside in order that God may pick out one here and one there, all who are willing to cooperate with him in the fulfillment of his purpose. I love Nehemiah because in God initiated a plan in heaven and he found a man abandoned to his will on earth and he put it together. That's what God does with anybody he uses. God has a plan in heaven for your life and he just wants you to be abandoned to his purpose on this earth. He wants you to fulfill his call, his will, his destiny for your life. And every one of you, God knew you when you were formed in the womb and he has a purpose for you. And if you're going to be a leader and if you're going to fulfill the purpose that God has for you, then you've got to know that the enemy doesn't want you to fulfill that purpose. He wants to stop the work that God's trying to do in your life. He wants to stop the ministry that God's given you. He wants to hinder you from being all that God saved you and has equipped you to be. And so you and I are in a battle. And Nehemiah is dealing with a battle. Now, God works. It's a two-sided coin. Guess what? Satan works, and it's a two-sided coin. First of all, Satan comes like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He'll roar, and he'll shout, and he'll malign, and he'll oppose, and he'll intimidate, and steal, and kill, and destroy, just like a roaring lion. And usually, when he comes that way, we see him coming. But it's the other way that he works that we sometimes are naive about. And that is Satan is also an angel of light. He appears as an angel of light. He appears to be good. And I tell you, one of the great fears I have about the emphasis on angels today is a lot of people are seeing angels and they think they're heavenly angels and they're demons disguised to look good. And people are buying into a lie thinking they're believing the truth. And Satan comes sometimes as an angel of light and he entices us to compromise. He entices us to back off from our commitment. He appears to give us good, sound, reasonable advice and counsel. Now, if you've been with us in the study in Nehemiah, you know in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 5, Satan has come like a roaring lion. He's come in attack after attack after attack on Nehemiah. He's come to attack the people and to discourage them. Now in chapter 6, he changes his tactics. By the way, you need to understand, anytime one tactic doesn't work with you, Satan uses another one. He doesn't quit. He just backs off to regroup. And he uses another tactic, and this is where you have to anticipate the enemy. You have to see him coming. You have to recognize it. And quite honestly, I'm very concerned because Paul says we are not ignorant of his devices, but I meet a lot of Christians who are ignorant of his devices, and they don't have to be. I mean, we are not clueless. The one thing that I have learned in the last few years about the devil, and forgive me for using this word picture, but it will help you understand it, the devil always plays his trump card early. You always know what he's going to do. I mean, the devil can't hide his plan. He's got to get it out there in front because he, he wants to lay his cards all on the table and he wants you to buy the deck. You know what he's going to do. He appears as an angel of light. That's one of the ways that he's going to work. And one of the things that I wish Christians would do is I wish they would not be so naive and would have more discernment. 
I mean, some Christians, you can sell aluminum siding to them when they've got a brick house. They just have no discernment at all. And you, if you're going to succeed in the Christian life, you've got to have godly discernment. You're only going to get that one way. You've got to get in the Word, and you've got to understand what God says in His Word so that when something comes up that is opposed to the principles of God's Word, the Holy Spirit puts a check inside of you and says, you don't need to go down that road. You don't need to fellowship with that person. You don't need to do that with them. You don't need to be involved in that person's life. You don't need to buy into that business. You don't need to do those things. And God will put something inside of you, and that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you to give you discernment if you've been in the Word enough that you can be sensitive to what He's saying. So I guess today is about anticipating the enemy and winning the day. And so let's see how far we can get through the first point. Now, the early crowd listened quick enough to get all the way through the first point. We'll see how good y'all are, all right? Verse 1, chapter 6. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Sheriffram and the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner and I answered them in the same way. Now, they've come in chapter 2 and laughed at him. In chapter 4, they've gotten angry and mocked him. In chapter 4 and verse 7, they've conspired to fight against him. Now they come to him and say, why don't we just get along? Let's just get along. I know we've been enemies in the past, and I know we've been opposed to each other in the past, but, but let's, let's find some common ground. Let's, let's practice peaceful coexistence. Let's just forget about the things that divide us and, and let's look at how we can work together. Let's meet on the plane of Ono. Now, you see, I, I find so many things in the Word that so, sometimes you see it and you don't, you don't catch it, but I just, it's the warped way that I think, but I just put a little note down. Nehemiah said, Oh no to Ono. Oh why God put no in the English language N-O so it'd be easy for us to say it. You know, no. Let, let's talk. Let's have a dialogue. Why don't you come down to this little seacoast area down by the Gaza Strip and, and we'll just get a little conference room with a window overlooking the beach and order us some lemonade and, and maybe get a little a table of uh, some little snack food and, and we'll just have a little discussion. Now that you're about to rebuild the wall, you see they were about to be locked out when the doors were hung, it was over for these three. And they were about to be locked out of what God was doing in Jerusalem, and they realized they were defeated, and so the only thing they do, knew to do now was to try to get Nehemiah to compromise on his stand and on his conviction. So they said, let's just get together and discuss this. Let's just have a meeting of the minds. And Nehemiah said, I can't do that. I don't have time for you. I've got a great work that I'm doing. You see, there's a time to discuss and there's a time to work. And when it's time to work, the time for discussion is over. There's a time to discuss and there's a time to go to work. Now, 
you say, well, Nehemiah just, he must not have had very much mercy in his life. No, let me tell you how Nehemiah knew not to go talk with them. They had never repented of all the other times of trying to oppose him. And because they had never come to him and repented and said, you know, when we tried to oppose you starting this project, when we tried to oppose you building this wall, when, when, we, tried, when we fought you, when we mocked you, when we ridiculed you, even after you prayed, after all those things, when we did that, they never came and said, you know what? We were wrong. And so Nehemiah knew a principle that you need to understand. No repentance, no acceptance. If a person doesn't repent of past behavior, you cannot trust the present behavior because it can change. You see, there has to be repentance. The hardest words for us to say is, I was wrong and I'm sorry. There's no repentance and there's no acceptance. And he says, I've got a job to do and I cannot come down. Now here's a law of leadership. Never waste time with people who want to talk when it's time to work. Now notice, they came to him four times. Four times the same message. Come on, let's talk. Four times the same response. No, I don't have time to do that. They bugged him and they bugged him for an appointment so they could talk to him to get him out of Jerusalem. And most commentators believe that as they study this passage that what they were trying to do is get Nehemiah out of the protection of the city and assassinate him. Because these three knew, get rid of the leader and the project's dead. So if we can get the leader out and kill him, then the project will die for lack of leadership. Folks, everything rises and falls on a person who has the ability to lead. Your family rises and falls on your ability to be a godly leader. Your life rises and falls on your ability to lead as a man or a woman of God. And so what happens is he tells them no. Now, I, I've got to tell you this. You will be misunderstood when you say no. People will think that you're insensitive. People will think that you don't care. But if you've got a work to do, you've got to say no to something so you can say yes to the things you need to say yes to. Paul did not say, these 40 things I dabble in. Paul said, this one thing I do. There has to be focus in our life. And the problem is we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And so here we have an issue of priorities, and the key is his discernment, and you and I need to pray to have discernment, to have that sixth sense of what God's trying to do. Now, these folks sounded sincere. They sounded reasonable. In fact, somebody, I'm sure, said to Nehemiah, well, you, you ought to go sit down and talk to them. You, you, you ought to just, you know, have a little dialogue. Have a, have a little meeting over here. And I'm sure somebody tried to encourage Nehemiah. So, you know, well, Nehemiah, maybe, maybe we've just been too hard on Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. And Nehemiah said, man, I've, I've been listening to these guys for 45 days. And every time they open their mouth, they're trying to run down the work of God. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to pay attention. I'm not going to give it the time of day. Because if I stop for this, I've got to stop for everything. And so he said, no. Now, Look at the quote that's in your note page because I think it is a very, very key quote. Michael McCutcheon says, Time is on the spiritual leader's side. If an offer given by a former enemy is valid, it will remain open to future acceptance. If the offer is not valid, it will soon become evident upon its rejection. You see, their reaction to Nehemiah's rejection 
let Nehemiah know he was right, that they had mixed motives, that they had another agenda, that there was an alternative plan that they had in mind, that they meant to do him harm. Time is always on your side, folks. The time for you to do right is now. The time for you to do a great work is now. And if you set your face like a flint to do the work of God and to walk in the will of God, I'm going to tell you something. There are going to be people who distract you. There are going to be people who come along and say, well, let's go over here and do this, and, and why don't you get involved in this, and why don't you join that, and why don't you become a part of this, and they're going to try to diffuse your energy and your focus and your time. And you have to constantly say, can't do that. I have a great work that I'm doing. I can't be a part of that. I, I, it's a good thing, but it's not a better thing. It's a better thing, but it's not the best thing that I can do. And you're going to be misunderstood. If you lead at all, if you are a parent and you're leading your family to do some things and every other family says, oh, don't be so narrow. I've just got to help you to understand something. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be second-guessed. You're going to be talked about. It comes with life, folks. And the only way to avoid criticism is to say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. And the only way to do that is to die, and then they're going to talk about you after you're dead. And you've got to understand that it goes with the territory. And what we're going to look at tonight is how you and I, from a godly perspective, are supposed to deal with criticism. Because there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with it. I know I've dealt with it the wrong way before, and I also know the benefits of dealing with it the right way. And I can tell you, the right way is better than the wrong way. Okay? It's a whole lot painless, more painless. If you deal with it the wrong way, you're walking down a road you don't want to walk down. Now listen, if you lead, if you're a Christian businessman or if you're in sales or you have a leadership position and anybody answers to you and is responsible to you, sooner or later you're going to make a decision and they're not going to like it. Your kids don't like it. By the way, teenagers don't like anything, so quit worrying about what they think. <laughs> Just forget them. They don't even figure in the equation, all right? Make them think they're important, pat them on the head, buy them a shirt, and leave them alone. <laughs> Send them to Six Flags, they'll be happy for a few months. You know, just, I mean, that, you're always going to find people that go, I, 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 no, we don't need to do that. John Maxwell said to Ronnie Floyd a few months ago, Ronnie, you need to understand something. 15% of the people in your life oppose you and want you to fail. Some of you have got parents that want you to fail. Every time you succeed, they just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, so? You're never good enough. You never live up to the standard, the expectations that they've set. Some of you have a boss, and you can't please him. You have employees, and you can't please them. By the way, can I give you a principle? Those of you that are in business, the ones you give the most to always have their hand out the most. If you're always giving and giving and giving, they keep coming back and wanting and wanting and wanting. You see, there's always going to be somebody out there you can't please. 
And we are foolish if we think that if we love God and pray and worship and spend time with God and serve Him, that all the critics and the problems and the issues and the battles are going to go away. No, no, they're going to get worse. I've got more problems the more I get committed to Christ, not less. But I have somebody who's an overcomer who lives inside of me. There, there's something that I remember every now and then, and the Lord brings it to my mind, and it helps me a whole lot. And I hope it helps you. This will be a little homework for this afternoon. It's not in your notes, but I want you to grab this. In John, 1 John chapter 2, it says Jesus is our advocate. You know what an advocate is, don't you? An advocate's a lawyer. An advocate's a lawyer. Can I tell you something? Jesus is your lawyer in heaven. He's your defense attorney. He knows everything you're guilty of, but he's taking care of it. And the reason... I've got the greatest lawyer, man, I tell you, not the one that's helping me with my dad's estate, but the other one. Uh, mine in heaven's a whole lot better. You know why I love my lawyer so much? Because he's related to the judge. <laughs> and everything I take to my lawyer, he just turns to his father and says, Dad, you, we're going to have to work on this one. You see, the whole case is fixed. The prosecution doesn't have a chance. I mean, the accuser of the brethren is, has no basis. The trial is dismissed. The case is closed. I've got the lawyer and the judge, and they're on my side, and they want me to win, so all I've got to do is just sit in the courtroom and keep my mouth shut and let him handle it. You see, where we get in trouble, and this is what we'll talk about tonight, where we get in trouble is when we're constantly trying to defend ourselves or standing up in court yelling objection, we just need to sit down and zip our lips and let our defense attorney object. He does a better job than I do. He's a lot more skilled than I am. And he cares more about the consequences than I do. <laughs> so here's my lawyer. He's seated at the right hand of the judge. And the judge has the final word. You remember what Paul said in Corinthians? It doesn't matter to me much whether you judge me or not. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'll leave that up to the Lord. Folks, listen to me. You will drive yourself crazy if you worry about what everybody thinks about you. You will literally go crazy. If you worry about people's opinions when you make a decision, when you try to take a stand with your family, when you try to lead in your business, when you make a change, when you step out on faith, you will always have somebody who criticizes you, who second guesses you, and you will drive yourself crazy if you worry about them. The only thing you've got to worry about is am I in communication with God? Is He initiating this and am I cooperating with Him? And if you are, don't worry about what everybody else says. Don't worry about what everybody else says. Now, I don't know what you're in the middle of, and I don't know what you've come through or where you're headed, but I can tell you this. 
If you're seeking to do the will of God, somebody is going to try to distract you from doing it. You've just got to decide now. I'm doing too great a work. I cannot come down to your level and argue with you and debate with you about non-essentials. God's called me to something higher. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.